0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. The painkiller. The penicillin. The doctor. Some cocktail menus lean heavily on the idea of self-medication. But for millennia, alcohol was medicine. Weak beer was safer to drink than water, and eau de vie was distilled from any number of fruits to treat colic or a cold. Though the ancient Greeks wrote at length about the medical applications of wine, even earlier uses for fermented beers and beverages appear on Sumerian tablets, Egyptian papyri, and Vedic texts. Cocktail connoisseur Camper English, who has been covering the drinks industry for more than 15 years, turns his attention to this long and storied history in his new book, Doctors and Distillers, which traces modern mixology back to its therapeutic roots. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Camper.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Did you find any alcohol that didn't have a medicinal value at some point in its existence? Hmm, I don't think that
1: I did. Um, Because distilled alcohol itself, well, all alcohol is uh, antibacterial in some way. So for the most part, I was uh, looking at the history of Uh, spirits more so than uh, wine and beer, although wine and beer have a long history of medicinal use as well. And once distillation comes into the picture, it's all medicine. And in fact, the idea of distilling wine was 100% in a medical context. It wasn't like, how do we make this wine stronger? It was, how do we harvest the active medicinal properties of wine. And that's how we ended up with distilled spirits. And at that point, it was purely in the context of medicine and used for several hundred years of uh, in that way. It's all medicine at the end of the day.
0: As you point out, you know, the importance of distilled alcohol is in the name too, because that first distillation is called water of life in pretty much every language. Eau de vie, aquavit. Whiskabu, which I'm probably saying wrong, and a number of other words that I definitely can't pronounce. So when did distillation get going and what was this water of life used for?
1: Well, uh, distillation had been used back as far as the year like zero or 300, but not to make Increased uh, strength alcohol at the time. There was used for everything else, for uh, chemical processes, metallurgy, things like that. And eventually, the the Arabic scientists during the Islamic Golden Era, and this is about seven hundred to twelve hundred A.D., uh, were making rose water famously and using it for everything, medicine as well as perfume, as well as for food, and uh, they apparently had tried distilling wine, but probably weren't separating the alcohol and water, just separating wine from the, the lees uh, at, the, at the end of it. And so they commented that it comes out clear like rose water. However, it was after this era, just after, back into Europe, we see what looks like the first alcoholic distillation around the year 1200, roughly. And that's in a purely medical context, because physicians were distilling everything to try to harvest its active essence. So uh, the active essence of roses, you capture it in rose water and wormwood in wormwood water, and they were distilling blood and eggs and hair and all of these animal substances as well in order to try to extract that sort of powerful medicine from them to apply it to human needs. And it's when they got to wine, they were like, whoa, we did it, fam. <laughs> we, we figured it out. We've got the best medicine. And it's so—it's not just the water of wine. It's the water of life. This stuff does everything. It makes you more talkative. It cures deafness, though they thought. Um, it um, does all these miraculous things. And if you drink it, you're going to live forever. It's its terrific.
0: Yeah, I think what's what's pretty cool about the creation of distilled alcohol is that across the world, pretty much in every tradition, every spirit was used medicinally from Mexico to China, whether it was distilled from grapes, grain, agave, or cane, as you so charmingly rhyme in the book. Um, like, what were some of the the uses of these spirits? And I guess maybe even the pre-spirits because, like, the mashes or the pulque was used too.
1: Yeah, so the, all the fermented beverages were used medicinally beer wine pulque, um, sugar cane beer and mead uh, fermented honey before they were distilled and then found to be extra powerful medicines what was interesting was though distillation may have come to different parts of the world and been used on different base material in different times in different places people found uh, common uses for it the the big one that everyone commented on was regulating body temperature it's too hot have some whiskey it's too cold have some whiskey and we have that rumor about the um st bernard dogs rescuing people in avalanches with a barrel of brandy on their necks but then we have records of people in the caribbean and said oh there's no way you can survive in this temperature without your rum to drink it's it's a cooling beverage so it was was used In one direction or another um, as well as sort of providing energy it's uh, the vitamin of its day i suppose
0: (laughs) the thing about distillation too is that it opened the door for adding stronger flavors and people started combining flavors sometimes dozens or hundreds of things at a time like the european monks who created chartreuse or benedictine two things i'm very grateful they invented so, I mean, how did that evolve? I mean, was it kind of a natural evolution of like, ah, oh, yes, we used to use wormwood bark to cure people or a tea from the bark, but like now we're going to put it in alcohol and combine it with other stuff and make this elixir?
1: Well, certainly most of these herbal medicines were taken with liquids uh, as as a method of administration because you can't just chomp on wormwood. I mean, you could, but wow, your mouth would be in a bad shape after that. Wormwood (laughs) is very, very bitter. However, in most places in the world, particularly when there were larger populations, water wasn't safe to drink, and beer and wine were the, the only liquids you would really consume. So these medicines were always taken with the liquids. They were often infused into the liquids, beer and wine. And then when it came to distilled spirits, they found spirits could absorb those properties of the botanicals that were in them very well and preserve their medicinal nature. And uh, they became used, as you noted, in uh, with multiple botanicals all at once. And I'm not sure if everything harkens back to a a generic anti-poison that's supposed to cure everything. There were these theriac and mithridates, I think it's pronounced like that, uh, that were cure-all, anti-poison, anti-venom medicines. And if we look at some of the ingredients from these going back to Greek and Roman time, and then look at things like chartreuse and benedictine, there's a lot of overlap actually in the botanicals that were used for cure-alls. And in the, the context of the Middle Ages, when the monks were distilling and, and making these complex liqueurs, as we would see them today, um, they were sort of a, not a cure-all, but really a, a healthy beverage that people might take a little bit of every day. But if you were feeling sick, maybe you'd have more than one spoonful of chartreuse. You know, it helps to feel a little ill every day, I find, um, to uh, give yourself an excuse to have a little more.
0: Is there a connection between liquors like Chartreuse and Benedictine and all that and like the pre-dinner rituals that you find in a lot of cultures, you know, aperitifs, the vermouth hour or even absinthe? I mean, I I personally, I don't see how absinthe could pique your appetite. I like it just fine. (laughs) But um, is there a connection there
1: well, certainly in all of these medicines tend to have some bitter herbs in it and bitter herbs naturally stimulate our digestive systems um, in humans because essentially we, we our systems recognize them as poison. <laughs> they say <laughs> bitter is bad. You better get this out of your system now that you put it in your mouth. So all of your digestive juices start churning and getting ready to just expel this as fast as possible. But uh, if we're just having a, a little bit of that, that's what we think of as an aperitif and a digestif. It uh, helps us process a meal. And so we're sort of using this poisonous aspect of these botanicals to, um, to suit our needs. And, you know, I can't imagine what the average diet was for anybody in, you know, the year 1,600 or so, but it probably wasn't super well-rounded. Maybe you're eating meat for months in a row or, or just potatoes or something like that. And so the need to help with digestion, uh, I, I imagine, would be uh, far more important than it is today. So these herbs like uh, wormwood and gentian and rhubarb root, they tended to end up in many, many different liqueurs and aperitifs and digestifs. They all had a overlapping function because everybody had problems with digestion. And then the alcohol might help with some of the nasty germs that were in the drinking water um, or and everything else. So the combination of the two worked out well for people of, of the era.
0: Most of those um, botanicals were in use well before, you know, the scientific revolution, as we call it in the West during the Enlightenment. But what's interesting is like in the years since then and even today, you know, a lot of those traditional and folk applications for things like gentian have been proven correct. Are most of these things actually good for you? Are there any things that we've been like, whoops, scientists recently found that X can actually kill you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, there's tons of that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it really does go both ways. Uh, there are plenty of the botanicals that have been used traditionally for millennia um, to do the same stuff that they were used for in spirits. And we just made them taste better with, with the alcohol and adding a little sugar to them when sugar became more readily available. I think most of the spirits that have these medicinal origins that are still around today are probably in a much friendlier form than they once were when they were a lot more uh, directly medicinal. But uh, we find a lot of the the herbs, it, it does turn out that these are scientifically provably helpful um, in small quantities. And everything goes haywire when when you have too much. You know, I like modern science And I like, um, I tend to disbelieve herbal medicine when I first start thinking about it. And I always have to remind myself of quinine and that quinine is tree bark that prevents and cures malaria. And it's from a region of the world that probably didn't have malaria when it was discovered.
0: Well, you mentioned quinine and the gin and tonic as being sort of the, the bowling ball that got this all started. Can you just tell the story of how this malarial fighting tree bark ended up in one of the world's most popular cocktails?
1: Sure. Um, what happened with, with me was I was researching the creation date for the, the cocktail, the gin and tonic. I'd read over and over again that it was probably created in India by the British to combat Uh, malaria, and the dates of its creation were always really approximate. And so I thought, I'm going to read all these books on the history of malaria, and I'm going to find the the true gin and tonic creation date. But uh, I I didn't. (laughs) And uh, uh, it was a Google book search that really got me a lot closer to at least the first reference to the gin and tonic. However, I learned the history of tonic water in that exploration. And so tonic water is flavored with quinine, and quinine is an alkaloid that comes from cinchona tree bark. The cinchona tree is native to Peru and Bolivia, has a very sort of narrow range in, in the mountains where it, it is from, and it was with uh, Jesuit missionaries in the early 1600s where they were probably taught by the indigenous people. Of, of the area, that this tree bark is good for the shaking that accompanies the fever and chills. And they said, oh, well, we're very familiar with fever and chills because we're from Italy, which is rife with malaria. Like Rome was particularly famously rife with malaria. Popes died all the time of malaria. So Jesuit missionaries of Peru start uh, exporting the bark back to Italy and it becomes associated really with the Catholics, and it becomes known as the Catholic cure, and it's the cure for fever and egg, which is one of the names of malaria. That's uh, really the symptoms of it. And then uh, it took a while for that to catch on because the, the Protestants were not having it, and they considered it witchcraft, and you can't trust this Catholic stuff. So eventually that was proven to be a medicine that works for everybody, and uh, then it spread. So the colonial superpowers of the time competed basically in a race to uh, export some of the trees, and this is up into the 1800s now, and to smuggle out some seedlings and seeds and to grow them in their own territories, which eventually happened, and the trees then became planted in India as well as in uh, Java and Indonesia, Um, and then the Dutch sort of took over the global trade. But uh, from a medicinal standpoint, the quinine in the bark interrupts the malaria parasites reproduction cycle in the blood and can dampen the impact of malaria as well as um, help clean it out of, of the system. This allowed greater exploration by these colonial powers again into places particularly like Africa and India that had huge um, amounts of malaria that would sort of repel the invaders successfully, but they were able to overcome with their new stores of cinchona bark. And so this bark, as mentioned earlier, is super bitter and barky and therefore needed to be consumed in beverages, sweetened lemonade, uh, whiskey, beer, Sherry, there's references throughout history of all the different uh, alcoholic beverages with which it was consumed, and in the really in the the 1700s, there was attention to carbonation and mineral waters and how they were considered to be very healthy and medicinal. And so, the combination of the quinine with the soda water at the time was a very natural fit. It was sort of like i don't know Gatorade and vitamins or something like that to just two things are supposedly healthy let's put them together and that's how tonic water really came about uh mixing with gin uh you know the british mix everything with gin so it was an, another natural add on to form the drink that we know and some of us love today
0: yeah i'm the <laughs> odd one out here i know well, I did want to ask you about carbonation because I think the key there is is that it's not always the alcohol part of alcoholic drinks that is believed to be good for you, right? Like in tonic water, it's the quinine and this and this bark. Um, the same is true for like soda water. Can you talk about carbonation generally in alcoholic drinks and how it got there because, you got the two things, right? Fermentation creates bubbles. Then you've also got carbonation. And I was, I guess I was just surprised that there was a connection between the two scientifically, you know? Maybe I'm packing too much in one question, but like bubbles, they're really interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it ended up, being one of my favorite chapters in the book to write, it's it's the the science chapter as I call it, and it really comes from two different sources of bubbles: naturally bubbly, fizzy mineral water that would come out of the earth, like Perrier, as well as the bubbly water from fermentation from beer. And so, different sets of scientists studied these waters, and um, or or the 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 bubbles, um, and made a lot of discoveries from similar starting point. So when we talk about the mineral waters, you know, water was problematic. And I guess we're past the later Middle Middle Ages at this point and approaching the scientific revolution. And uh, people would go, you know, take the waters, go into the countryside and uh, enjoy the waters of mineral springs that was going to be healthy. Maybe you would bathe in it, maybe you would drink it, maybe both. And People uh, would go to these health spas, and they, each of the different mineral springs was considered healthy for different conditions. But the ones that were fizzy water, naturally, were considered the very, very best and, and the most healthy of the waters. And for reasons that are not super clear to me, I think it's just, you know, it... We, we like it like we do today, like fizzy water is just more fun, um, but it was considered more healthy at the time. So scientists wanted to recreate that water without having to go all the way to somewhere in the countryside to find that rare spring. And that's how our whole obsession with carbonated beverages really started, was trying to recreate specific mineral springs that were considered healthy. So all of the early fizzy sodas were considered health beverages right from the get-go. Scientists studied the fizzy aspect of it and eventually were able to understand gas laws because a gas of this carbonation is different. Now we know it's carbon dioxide, but early on it was considered fixed air. And what is this weird stuff? Other scientists, including Louis Pasteur, would study the carbonation of beer and that fizzy water, but also... This was a biological process as opposed to a purely chemical process when it comes to the mineral water springs. And that's a really important distinction scientifically, and that's what scientists like Pasteur would study. And the germ theory of fermentation led, it was a direct line to the germ theory of disease. And from there to antiseptics as well as uh, anesthetics, uh, studying these different gases that could be separated one from another. So the source of inspiration, bubbles, (laughs) led to all sorts of really amazing scientific discoveries in in different ways.
0: So what was the most appalling cocktail or uh, medicinal alcoholic drink you discovered in the course of your research? And what was the most delicious and uh did you make both of them <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh there is so so much poison in this book no I was like not going to make you know most of the beverages let alone the <laughs> the most poisonous one there's a lot of mercury in the book because it was it was used for everything um uh, particularly uh skin. Issues, uh, including syphilis, and uh, there's a lot of, a lot more syphilis in this book than you'd probably guess, uh, just hearing about the title of it. But uh, so that's mercury. Some of the you know most dangerous medicine in the book, but also uh, sassafras and sarsaparilla are some of the most delicious botanicals used for herbal beverages and those were both also used for syphilis. And none of those worked. I don't think between the mercury and the sassafras and the sarsaparilla there was a single cure among them. Uh, Penicillin did a lot better when that came along much later. However, uh, when we think of these sort of old-timey soda fountain beverages one, a lot of them had medicinal origins, and two, a lot of those are really good. There's a lot of great information and great recipes and old soda fountain drinks from the uh, later 1800s and early 1900s.
0: Well, final question. A cocktail that someone could make at home that you might recommend um, as a mixologist, not as a as a medical man?
1: Yeah, when I think of the most medicinal cocktail, I, I think of a gin and tonic, honestly, which is something that anyone can make. However, I think most people do make it not in its best form. Uh, And I did spend a lot of time dialing in my ideal gin and tonic recipe. I like it pretty boozy. (laughs) Um, uh, It's got to be crisp uh, with great carbonation. And my version of it is sort of snuck into the book, really just uh, to point out what the ingredients are in drinks rather than it being a cocktail-focused book but my favorite recipe of the gin and tonic was you start with a lime wheel and put it in the bottom of your glass and then ice and press down on that lime wheel. So you get just a little bit of the juice and expressing the peels and the oil. Two parts gin to three parts tonic, I I think is my sweet spot. So that's pretty pretty darn boozy and, and then no need for additional garnish on top of that. But if you keep your gin in the refrigerator, I find it to be a far better drink than uh, anything out at room temperature the tonic also should be refrigerated and for me that's the most crisp and refreshing beverage that has so much history to it not just the tonic water of course of the gin that we didn't discuss much in this as well as that lime juice is there you know keeping you from getting scurvy (laughs) Um, so it's such a simple drink every part of it touches the history of medicine in some way
0: We have links in the show notes to Camper English's new book, Doctors and Distillers, as well as a collection of medicinal recipes that you can try out yourself. Full disclosure, they are cocktails. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.